0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're in the world headquarters of Raincatcher with Marla DiCarlo. She is the CEO of Raincatcher. Marla, thanks so much for taking time today.
1: Thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. Well, tell us a bit about your business and who you serve.
1: Sure. Okay, so the name of our company is Raincatcher, and we named that purposely because we always talk about that it's hard to make it rain, but it's easy to catch the rain, right? And so that's what we're doing is we're trying to catch these business owners who are out there who need help, who want to make this important decision, this once-in-a-lifetime event decision, and they're not prepared. And so what we do is we come alongside of them and we help them to not only market their business and find the right buyer and get the right price, but we also spend time with them to help them prepare to sell. And we do that by doing some tests and Looking at the overall score of their business and then figuring out how we can improve it. It's kind of like staging a house. I tell people often you can have a really nice house, a great area, but if you haven't taken the time to clean it and remove the junk, right, and some of the personal stuff, somebody's gonna go in and go, oh my gosh, this place is a mess. You know, I wanna drop this down $10,000, $20,000. Well, the same applies to a business. So there's certain things that they need to do to stage the business before they go and sell the business. And that's really what we're good at, and that's what we're all about
0: at Raincatcher. Before Raincatcher, you had quite a bit of experience going out and working with companies. I did. You did a bunch of due diligence work, if I remember correctly. Let's kind of rolling the clock back just a little bit. Let's talk about the experience of when you got to look inside companies mm-hmm. and how you bring that forward to helping the companies now.
1: Oh, I love talking about this because this is where the passion of small business comes out in me, right? So first off, I have to back up all the way to okay. I originally went to school, to become a social worker. And I tell people that because I think it's important because it talks about who I am as a person, what's important to me, and that is helping others. It's something that's in my core, something I really care about. And when I was in school, the problem there was I thought differently. You know, I wasn't, I realized amongst my peers and my director of human services brought up that I didn't quite think like everyone else because I have a very analytical side to me. I understood math. I am very geeky that way, right? And What I realized is that actually served me well in my career. I became an accountant, and it served me well because of the people component. I always cared about making a difference and wanting to change things and make it better. And so I became a corporate controller at a very young age. I was actually only 27 years old. And I moved on with the founder of a company I was working with who created a fund. It was a $500 million fund that we could pull from. And we worked with business owners to either help them to exit their business, help them to join maybe another company. Really, what we do today, we were doing this back in the beginning of 1990s. And what I found when I was working with these owners over and over and over again, my job was to fly out, perform due diligence on the small business owner create the CIM prospectus, take that back to our group, and then figure for out...
0: folks that don't know what CIM is.
1: Oh, Confidential Information Memorandum. Okay. Yeah. Basically, it's the marketing package for your business okay. and, and the information about your business. And what I saw over and over again when I met with the owner and the staff and looking at the company is how underserved they were. And I know that's cliche, but it was true. It was incredible... How many times I would go into a business owner's office, look at their financials, and they would say, we're operating at a, you know, 45% gross profit margin. And we would start digging in and it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, you've got this in overhead and you don't have, or g and you don't have this up in mm-hmm. cost of goods. And it was small changes that would have made a difference in the decision that that CEO would make about the company had they known.
0: They didn't have good numbers.
1: They didn't have good numbers. They didn't understand their numbers most of the time. And so this was now coming towards 2007. And I realized, oh, I can change this. Because as a controller, as a CFO for a company, I do look at things differently. There's certain things that I see. And my job was to communicate that to the CEO, to the staff, and then be a part of that decision making of how we were going to handle that, and how we were going to handle the use historical information to handle the future, make well, proactive you came, decisions. You came with buyer's eyes.
0: Yes. As you were looking yes. at
1: these companies, hundred percent. And I think that that gave me credibility that I would not have had had I come in telling them these are the things you need to change in our company. But because I was coming in to as a potential buyer or someone that could help them to find buyer, they gave me credibility that maybe others wouldn't and they listened. And so what I learned very quickly was this is very personal to this owner and I learned very quickly that we always use, you know, the baby. Everybody thinks their baby is pretty. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I mean, my daughters is drop dead gorgeous.
0: Of course, <laughs> you know? yes. But,
1: but, you know, it's hard to then tell them, okay, yes, you have a beautiful baby, but there's some things that still need to, they need to grow up. You mm-hmm. know, there's some things that they're not ready yet. Mm-hmm. And so I learned how to communicate with that owner in a way where it wasn't, Coming across as, here's the things you've done wrong, and this is what you need to do different. You know, I learned how to work with them and how to get them to see things in a different way, you know, to make a different decision. So I left the portfolio I had, the M&A work that we were doing, and I started Kaizen Business Results. And what this was, was CFO controller services. And this was before CFO became the it word, which is what I call it today, which is very important. I'm not downplaying it. I'm glad it's become something that people embrace. When I started, I had to explain to business owners what a CFO was. So was that
0: your first business start?
1: Yes, it was. My very first business start. I think about
0: the moment. So there's a moment. And you're doing all this stuff and flying all over the place and said, you know what? And you go home and say, honey, I think I'm going to do this.
1: What's better than that?
0: (laughs) Take us to that story because I think for many business owners, there is a moment where you finally decide to leave whatever security that you might have thought you had to go out on this business venture of your own.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is such a story. There's so much to that. So... I have to bring this up. At the same time that I had this idea of Kaizen, I had a company that I was interviewing with for a development controller position. It was really a VP position, at a very prestigious development company here in Denver. And I was on my sixth interview with this company. I was in bag and lots of reasons why, you know, that was going to happen I knew that this was something I had to do, helping small business owners. There was a faith component behind that that really mattered to me. And, you know, I had some some guidance, I guess, from that as well. Mm-hmm. And I actually called the VP of finance and I withdrew my name from the interview process with the support of my husband, mm-hmm. which was just, I still thank him for that. And I remember the VP of finance saying, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I, I remember pausing for a minute, thinking, "Oh my gosh, this would be life changing you see your, you know, your life spiraling in front of you." But I knew this was something that I had to do, and it went back to that who I am in my core. And I was never satisfied with just doing just the the mediocre thing that everybody does, going into work, do your job, you know, leave. I needed to make a difference. I needed to feel tangible, you know, see it. And so I knew I could do this with Kaizen. And luckily enough, I started with five clients and I still thank them all for that. I mean, just incredible. And I was able to grow within six months, I was able to grow that business to 48 clients in six months. And then I, I say these numbers And you were a plug-in
0: CFO for 48.
1: 48. I did have staff, you know, because I immediately realized when I started the company, I wasn't going to do accounting and bookkeeping, but I realized, oh no, we need to have this because garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. There's nothing worse I and, Man, I needed to have control over that. And so I added that. So I had employees and subs working for me, but yeah, for, I was the CFO for 48 companies mm-hmm. And then I realized I needed to hire people and have processes in place.
0: <laughs> Same things that you're talking about Same now. Yeah, I'm
1: talking to, right, to the owners about, yeah. right? Yeah. I say this story because a year later, I was inching up towards, it was definitely right below 200 clients. And I had like 50 subs and 50 employees. And what your face is showing is exactly what happened. I grew too fast. I didn't have time to hire the right people. I was looking for a warm body.
0: Plugging the holes in the dark. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the vision I had for Kaizen was not what the company had become. And then owner fatigue sets in, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm no different than any owner making those bad decisions. Everything came back to me. Mm -hmm. Every decision. every And on top of that, I felt personally responsible for these owners' companies. So, <laughs> you know, I made some changes. Uh, I definitely learned the power of documenting processes and process mapping. Oh, my gosh, that's so important. How to hire the right people. You know, how, what, why culture is so important. I learned how to say no.
0: There's a skill set.
1: To a customer that I just knew. I learned the power of interviewing that customer. That, yes, I wanted to put on a good impression and I wanted them to hire me. But I actually turned away quite a few customers because I just knew that they weren't willing to listen and make changes that was necessary for them to be successful.
0: Which really fits in nicely to what you're doing now.
1: Yes. Yes. So... I moved on. <laughs> I actually sold the company to a national company, but it just didn't work out. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So at that is, time... you
0: know, Not to, to interrupt, but that's, yeah. how dissimilar is that oh. to many of the stories you hear from business owners? I started out here and I ended up there. Yeah. What I thought I was going to do isn't what I ended up doing.
1: And I can really empathize with the owners that sit there getting ready to sell their business and go into that panic mode You know, again, this is my child. What I'm turning my child over to a new person. And I can remember sitting in a training room at this company and having this moment of panic, like, what am I doing? It was really hard. It was very emotional. And um, there's so many things I would have done different. I would have read contracts differently. I would have asked different questions. I would have brought somebody in as a third party to manage the emotion. Yes. Because even though I knew what I was doing as a CFO, when you are the owner of a company that you have built, you are too close to well, it.
0: And you still have to run the company.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean,
0: and by the way, do this sale thing. Yes. Part time. Right. Part time. <laughs> no. Right. You know,
1: right. I, I, th- yeah. I think
0: about the emotional response to large life events. Yeah. You know, and, and you see a time and again where somebody says, if I had it to do over again, I would get past that emotional time frame and make a better decision. Yeah. And so, you know, for the folks out there that are kind of in this mode, it's really important to be able to either you step back or somebody says unique to you, not unique to selling a business.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely.
0: And the value of being able, you know, you've been down the track of buying your own, you're building a business, working for an M&A firm effectively, looking at lots and lots of businesses from buyer's eyes. Yes. Extremely critical. To develop that buyer's eye mentality.
1: It is. It is. Because, you know, everybody has an agenda when you're buying and selling a business. You know, the seller wants to maximize the value and get the best terms that they can get. And the buyer is going to look at it from a risk position and, you know, mitigate that risk and discount the things that they're not unsure about. You know, if they feel like this guy doesn't have it buttoned up... I'm not sure what it's going to look like when we do the transition with the revenue. Don't think that that's not going to be the terms in that purchase agreement. Short-term
0: contracts versus long-term contracts.
1: They are going to cover the risk is what it is. It's mitigating risk. And um, And
0: the the problem is the business owner may not see that as risk. Right. They say, well, this is just how we've done business and we're really good at it.
1: Yes. I was talking to an owner about this the other day. It's funny you bring that up because he is a sophisticated businessman. I mean, this guy is polished and he's selling his business and he chose us. And he was talking about maybe them coming in and helping with some of the negotiation because there's some little issues about their business that's different. And I said, listen, here's the deal. (laughs) Here's one competitor that I talked to. This was the feedback that they gave me about your company. And I knew it would be a dagger. And I said, and I know that's hard to hear. And he said, oh my gosh, it is hard to hear. And I said, I know, because you're too close to it. Now, mm-hmm. when that person said that to me, when that competitor said that to me about your business, I'm not close to it. I saw it for what it was. They were using it as a way to discount your business to get the terms that they wanted. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get emotional. You know, I was able to go, well, and counter what he said. Had you been a part of that, you know, it could have gotten very emotional and very ugly and it's hard. It's hard to hear. It's hard for somebody to tell you your baby's not pretty. <laughs>
0: when, when I think about that as a business owner, if you can step back from the emotional moment yeah. and go, that's such good feedback to know that. And then my next thought is, what do we do to mitigate that challenge, problem, yes. uh, what the buyer sees as a as a risk? How do we mitigate? What can we do? Yes. What do I need to change? What's my time frame?
1: Yes. Well, and gosh, that's a great point to bring up. So that's one of the things that we do at Raincatcher that also, I think, makes us unique from competitors in the market is we will spend time on sell-side risk assessment as part of our you know initial marketing package, working with a customer. We're 100% success-based, meaning that we believe that there needs to be a skin in the game from us the same way that the seller's trusting us. We need to trust them. We work together. We put together the package, all of the costs are up front, are on rate catcher's end, and part of that package is doing the risk assessment of the business, and this is a CFO and advisor that actually does some of our value building and exit planning, and we look for those skeletons in the closet, those red flags, because if we know about it ahead of time, especially before we're in due diligence, Mm -hmm. then there's things we can do to change it. And also ways that we can not candy coat it so that you're lying. That's not it. It's better to be forefront and be honest about these things. But to be prepared on how to answer some of those hard yeah, questions. Yeah, we, we did it on
0: purpose. We recognize the benefit yes. of owning a small business, so we we accounted for it this way, and we recognized it was going to be discussion point. This yes, is what we did, and I mean, and the buyer's going to go, okay, check.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what happens a lot of times, especially in due diligence, is the seller, because for a lot of people, this is the first time they're going through something like this. They weren't even aware that this was an issue. Mm -hmm. And so they were in due diligence and there's all kinds of things. We try to ask the right questions, but there's so many things that could come up. I mean, we had a company where we had their tax returns and it was actually signed off by a CPA. Well, normally a CPA won't sign off on a tax return without them being the ones to file. Weird situation that for whatever reason, the CPA allowed the customer to go ahead, their client to go ahead and mail in the tax returns. Well, the guy didn't realize his wife hadn't done it. And so we get into due diligence, we're in underwriting, we're two weeks away, and all of a sudden, you know, they're going, whoa, uh, IRS is saying that they never got your tax returns for four years had not been filed. The owner, the seller had no idea that this had happened. So how do you, and then that causes doubt, Because then the buyer's going, whoa, wait a minute. If you don't
0: know this.
1: If you don't know this, what else don't you know? And what else is there? And you know what? I do want to see those contracts. And I. Oh, but yeah. And
0: then it just, it's like the cockroach theory. It is. No such thing as one cockroach.
1: There you go. That's exactly it. And most of the time that's true. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when an owner is disconnected from their business, there is a lot of skeletons in that closet. Not because they were lying, not because they're dishonest, but they just didn't know.
0: You know, and, and I think about sitting across the table and everything's going and everything's going and all of a sudden the owner gets hit flat-footed with something he just plainly didn't know. Yes. And hit the confidence factor and your negotiating point and all of those things, which would have been so much better in that de-risking, stress test, Yes. pre-sale.
1: Emotions get high. And then, you know, you've got the situation where you're just trying to play damage control Mm -hmm. before the whole deal blows up. And it's really hard. I can remember that owner saying, hey, I'm an honest individual, you know, and the buyer is just taking him at his word, but it got heated. And so that's exactly it. Being able to do that risk assessment ahead of time, you know, verifying kind of top 20 things that are really important when you're going into underwriting, when you're performing due diligence. Again, we can't fix everything, but if we know about it, then there's ways that we can handle having those conversations with the buyers. or recognize.
0: So if you think it's worth X, but you've got these things going on here, that's going to affect X.
1: Yes, especially financials. Mm -hmm. This comes up all the time. You know, where most owners, you know, this goes back to my Kaizen days. I don't think that they spend the time and energy that they should understanding their financials and the importance of those numbers. And
0: making them useful. Yes. I mean, you know, if this is that and we're winning a bid, you know, did we preserve our margins? What did we do if we bought this company over here? And yes, it looks good on gross rev, but it really cratered everything else. And, you know, and I don't think they know. And, you know, you think my opinion, most business owners, they start on passion and end up with a business. Yes. A lot, a lot of them start out buying businesses to be a business owner.
1: I say... Oftentimes what I see is owner who was successful sort of in spite of themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and hey, wow, incredible. I mm-hmm. can't tell you how many. I probably worked with over, I mean, well over 500 businesses in my career. And I can't tell you how much I love hearing how they created their mm-hmm. business and going, you can sell this and make money off of this. This is incredible. It's
0: bizarre. It's the reason for the podcast. Yes. You know, and you know, we were talking about before. And you yeah. Go, okay. One, I'm a fan of business owners. I'm a business owner, and yeah. you watch what they do, and you kind of go, "You did what?" And they pay for it, really? right? Yeah, a lot. Wow. Go, no way. You know, and so we see this all the time. Yeah. And the reason to do is memorialize that journey. And like for you, you got tutored, apprenticed in an M and A firm.
1: Yes, I did. My I had an amazing mentor.
0: He was incredible. (laughs) And you think about how hard that is to find. Yeah. You know, and find an ethical mentor, which is even better. Yes. And then you go through and you go, okay, I'm going to be a CFO. And so you get this fire hose effect. Yes. Of all of these businesses with all of these different things. And it all boils down to similar concepts, numbers, procedures, policies, and process and all that stuff. Yes. And so I'm actually going somewhere with this. And so you decide then at some point, that you're going to get involved with Raincatcher. Yes. So what was the transition like when you went from CFO yeah. for the masses for God's sakes? Right. To going to Raincatcher.
1: Yeah. So it was exciting because I'd already worked with Robert Hirsch, who was the founder of Raincatcher, for I'd been a CFO for quite a while. And so I was excited to first off honor to be invited, you know, into Raincatcher. And I loved what they were doing. I love that, oh, I get to help hundreds of business owners with making sure that they're not leaving money on the table, they're not being taken advantage of, you know, that there's we can educate them before they make this important decision. And I was really excited about it and came in. Now Robert had kind of a different idea with Raincatcher. We he wanted to bring in leads through digital marketing, Mm -hmm. which at that time in 2016, was out of the box. I mean, I would go to an ACG event, mm-hmm. and the old-school business brokers, and they right, would shake my hand, ask me how I find my leads. I'd tell them through digital marketing, and they'd give me that look like, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, because there is a lot involved yes. when you're talking to someone over the phone about this important event. And so my job was to come in and figure out, first off, how do we handle these leads coming in? So I had to help with creating the funnel so that we were getting in touch with them right away. Right.
0: For some people, they may not understand funnel. Mm.
1: Yeah. So, gosh, I see this all the time with business owners. So we could bring in about 150 leads. Actually, at that time, it was like 250 leads per month. I know business owners who do this. Mm -hmm. But if you can't, if you don't have... A process in place to first get in touch with them right away because those people are shopping. So you got about five minutes to get a hold of them, mm-hmm. and there's statistics that show that even after an hour, it reduces by fifty percent of the probability of them even answering your call after one hour. Mm-hmm. So imagine that many leads coming in, you know, in a month, and then you're and trying they all to all come in equal. Every no, time. no, I mean you can have exactly ten of them coming at one time, yeah. and so getting back to them timely. Making sure that you've trained your staff so that they know the right questions to ask. Because these are busy business owners. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to mess around. And a lot of times we're talking high D's too, right? So I'm going to the disc profile. A high driver, somebody Mm -hmm. that's bullet point. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to get through this, ask your questions, and let Mm -hmm. me move on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So how do you engage that person over the phone? And then also communicate to them why they would even want to continue to talk with us. That funnel, you have your marketing side where you're educating the customer through the process, you're telling them what you do, you're hopefully helping them to understand if they're a fit for the service or product that you offer. So by the time that they fill out that form, they take that call to action, that action of filling out their name and their email, they pretty much have decided, well, I think this is a company that I would like to learn more about and I'm pretty sure that I'm a good fit for what they do. Mm -hmm. Then it's a matter of getting to them right away and starting to develop that trust and also determining if we do have a solution for their needs. And that's hard to do. A lot of companies fail doing
0: that. I I was thinking about your job as a CFO and the job on the buy side. And then all of a sudden you're now creating a marketing funnel that works for an industry that's not supposed to be able to create leads from digital marketing. Yes. So where did your wisdom on the digital marketing side come from?
1: Oh, 100% from Robert. Yeah, yeah, I, I would never take credit for that. Robert is one of those guys that he knows, you know, the digital marketing side and how to create nurturing, how to mm-hmm. communicate, mm-hmm. right, to that new lead, why we care and why we want to work with them. Mm-hmm. And so he just got that, you know, that was something that he did. And then with my background on process and understanding the dynamics of that small business owner, and then also the culture that we created where we care. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, that was something I will, the first thing I ask somebody when I'm interviewing them is what's your background with small business and why does that matter to you? Mm -hmm. And if they say something about, you know, it's the lifeblood of this country or, Mm -hmm. you know, this is why people come to America is because, you know, they want to start a small business I'm like, okay, right answer, because that is it. It doesn't matter if you're a foreigner or you've been a citizen of the United States. What makes us so great is we have this amazing opportunity through small business. It's what runs our country. And a lot of these owners have put their, you know, we always said blood, sweat, and tears. Truth. It is the truth. It is the truth. hundred percent. I mean, these guys, a lot of times, and, and ladies, are totally have put, They're everything. They're the kids' college fund, their mortgage, their retirement, everything into this business. And so when you make the important decision that you're ready to sell, you're ready to pass that off to someone else, you want to make sure that you've aligned yourself with someone who cares, understands the work you put in, and is going to come alongside of you and not just find the first buyer that comes in. I mean, I'm working with an owner right now. Couple of owners were when we were talking. Yes, do they want to make some money? Yes. But the thing that I kept hearing over and over again was we have put a lot into our culture and our employees, and that is important to us. It's keeping me up at night. I don't want our employees to lose their job. And so I knew that the job we would serve going out and finding a strategic buyer is finding the right cultural fit and then someone that cared deeply about the efforts they put into building their staff.
0: Well you're responsible not only to your customers, but to the families of your employees. Yes. I mean until you own a business. Yes. You know, you don't understand that your decision affects whether their kids go to school or not. That's right. You know and that's right. And I don't want to think about that a whole lot. Yeah. But it's the truth. And you know, and I think for the folks that are going like, I would like to own a business so then I can have my own schedule. <laughs> right. Flap. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. You're like, okay, that sounds uh, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me how that works for you. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but I think about all of those things when you're matching them up. So for you then, then you end up as the CEO yes. of Raincatcher. Yes. How is that as a shift mentally from the other things that you've done in the past?
1: Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, it was different. I found because I've always served a role of a CFO, and so I've always had to manage up, right? I've always had to, I've always had to collaborate with the owner, with the CEO, you know, and, and get my point across because I'm not a bobblehead. <laughs> that was the thing I used to tell people. So I was used to being able to push back and help them be part of the decision making mm-hmm. process. So that wasn't something that was foreign to me. It was something I was actually very comfortable doing. But what was different is, though I had an excellent team around me, I had to remember that my decisions affect them, but I am the final decision maker. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes I spent too much time collaborating because it's who I am as a person. First off, I love people. I love surrounding myself with smart people and then finding the best decision. But sometimes a leader just has to make a decision Mm -hmm. and you got to make sure that, you know, your people understand why you've made that decision and that they'll follow you. Mm -hmm. Right. But that was probably the hardest transition for me from a CFO to a CEO is owning that role, Mm -hmm. being comfortable. And I'm not always going to make the right decision, but I know that I think through things. I've taken everybody's opinion into account. I thought about this, and this is what we're going to do.
0: Well, you know, I I think about the decision process. Given the facts at hand yeah, and all the analysis and input, we're going to go this way. Yeah. And in the future, if it works out differently, and you go, there's either something we didn't know. That's right. and we didn't see, or I could have just made a mistake.
1: That's right. And owning that mistake. And you kind of
0: go, all right, now here's what we're going to do. Yes. To fix it. And, you know, when I think about that, and that makes us all less than perfect, which is what we are. Yes. But sometimes good enough is good enough.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, and I think that's that's a good point to bring up, too. I mean, I think one of the things being a a small business owner, and I see this often with the people that I work with, is they feel like they need to wear every hat, right? Mm -hmm. Because everything does come back to you as a small business owner. Mm -hmm. But there is so much power in surrounding yourself with people that are often smarter than you are in certain areas and then being able to take that information and create something with it. I think a good leader is somebody that motivates those around them to be the best they can be. And then knowing when's the right time to put the brakes on and when's the right time to put the gas on. We were talking earlier about, you know, driving that race car. I use that analogy oftentimes when I'm talking to owners because a race car is cool. I mean, it's, man, you're driving a race car. That's something fun. It's not a minivan.
0: It it is purpose built. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's not designed to haul (laughs) logs. And so you think about a very precision tool, really good for what it does. Right. Not a great family card. Right. You, you know, and, and I, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about running a business and interfacing with the business owners. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a recognition factor that you have from seeing so many businesses. Because, you know, if you've dealt with, worked with, you know, cfo 500 businesses, mm-hmm. you know, he says, this may be unique to you, mm-hmm. but it's not unique. When you look at the various businesses that you're talking to, if there were the top two, three, or four things that you always see, mm-hmm. that if a business owner is listening to this podcast, if I just go and look at number one or two, I can change the trajectory of my business, mm-hmm. what would you say those are?
1: Oh my gosh. First, is financials. What does that mean? It means if you do not have someone who is reconciling your books, who knows what they're doing. And you do not have your, you're not accounting in a way that you have information in front of you broken down where you know your gross profit margin by services, products, your labor burden. If you don't know percentages of revenue of your expenses, if you don't have KPIs set up that are specific for your industry, if you're not aware of how you perform with competitors in your industry I could just go on and on and on. I call it understanding the power of your financials. You know, and I
0: think, you know, most, many of the business owners says, you know, I have what the bank requires. Right. I've got my tax return. What do you want?
1: Right. So much more. Oh my gosh. Because those financials tell you a story. Mm -hmm. Always. It is the language of business. Mm -hmm. And if you understand what your numbers are telling you. So how you do that is first you need to make sure garbage in garbage out. So you need to make sure that you're taking care of recording things properly, reconciling your financials, and you know those numbers are
0: accurate. Is that something a CPA can do if you ask them?
1: Yes. I don't feel that's a good use of their time unless they have employees on staff who does that for them because and let me I'll go a couple of directions here. You want someone who is who understands the detail behind the numbers. Mm-hmm. And when you have a CFO and a CPA, a lot of times we're more big picture mm-hmm. We're I'm looking at something, you know, from a high level, not on a micro level. When I'm looking at financials, mm-hmm. there are individuals who are gifted at the micro details who spend the time to make sure that things are being allocated in the right places. And so, those are typically accountants and bookkeepers. So
0: for the business owner that's listening, yes, if they don't know how to find that person, before I forget, yes. they should reach out and just call you and go, how can I find that person?
1: Oh my gosh, I got a laundry list and I would love that. It would make me so happy With to help them. With that being said,
0: how do they find you?
1: <laughs> yes, so you, they can go to our website, raincatcher.com. My contact information is on there. They can also email me directly, marla at raincatcher.com. I would love to help them. I have such a passion for helping these small business owners to not only know what's coming up and help them with this, you know, event of selling their business, but I really want to spend time with them to help them understand how they can improve and maximize the value of their business. And well, yeah, that's I, what we can do.
0: I think about that for any business owner who says, well, I'm way the way I'm not going to sell my business for a long time. Yeah. And you go, you know, the concepts that we're talking about here are just good business. Yeah. And if your business is always run well, then we it's have ours almost always ready to be sold. It almost always will be better. Your banks if you're working with them will be thrilled. Yes. You know, and, and I think about that excellence in practice. You guys were recognized in Inc. magazine as well.
1: We right? were, yes. It's- One of the top uh, business brokers to work with, you have nine of them, and we were above Murphy and Sunbelt, which was quite an honor.
0: Yeah, and and you were thrown in with those small guys like Goldman Sachs and... Yeah, just little guys. Yeah, the the little (laughs) guys. Yeah, yeah. So how did that come about?
1: Well, uh, gosh, we when we first started, because we were so out of the box and we were getting such great feedback from professionals that we work with and also the owners, sellers we were working with, we actually got a call from the individual, the author that wrote the article for us with Inc. and wanted to know more about our business. And so we told him about what we do and how we do it. And this was the article that came out based upon his research and we were blown away when it came out. I mean, that was a huge honor to be able to say that we are one of the top business brokers in the US, which is what the article's written around, out of nine different, to your mm-hmm. point, Goldman Sachs and mm-hmm. some very large people. And I think the reason why that came about is we are focused on small business. Now, we do have an M&A division. I've got that background. I've got several senior brokers that have closed $100 million companies, and we love those businesses, and we can certainly help them. But where we focus is on that small business owner, anywhere from a million to, you know, I would say about $25 million in revenue. That is our sweet spot. Those are our people. That's who we love to help. And that came across in that article because it is an underserved market. There are a lot of it, it brokers is. out there that say they understand small business that they don't.
0: You know, I, I think too, there's an abundance currently, it appears, of money to buy businesses. Oh yes. And there apparently is a shortage of businesses that are ready to be bought by yes. these people. And they start getting deal fatigue. Yes. You know, and you know, that sounds sort of counterintuitive that there's a lot of money looking for businesses to buy. Yeah, And the business owners go, well, I'd like to sell my business. And they go, wanting to and having it ready to. You're know, like, I want to be taller, but that isn't going to happen to you. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, so I, yeah. I, I think about that niche. So we have their financials. Yeah. What are one of the things, you know, financials people yeah, go, yeah, yeah. But they don't do much about it. What yeah. would be one other thing that you might think of that they could do?
1: Yeah, so owner dependency is very typical. And what that means is... The owner has created a company, but more of a job, unfortunately, because they haven't thought to bring on staff that can transition with the business. And that matters to a buyer because if that owner hasn't set up an executive staff or at least has a couple of managers that want to continue with the business, that owner, that seller is going to have to continue. And let me tell you, that's hard to do. Yes. Because you've been the decision maker, you've been the parent of that company, and now you have someone else that's coming in and telling you who your company is, how you're going to do things. Some owners do okay with that. We try to talk owners out of doing it longer than two years because it's just too difficult.
0: Yeah, I call it from driving to riding.
1: Yes. (laughs) That's a good way to put that because that is so true, and it happens all the time. And so it really is not that difficult to, you know, we'll help that owner to interview, figure out what positions are needed first and foremost, but then create and tailor a hiring process to find that right person, uh, help to document the processes so the onboarding is easier. And then also, you know, the time that it takes to work with that individual and giving the buyer comfort that that person is going to continue with the business. You know, there's so much we can do with bonus plans. Oh yeah, you
0: can incent to show up.
1: Yes, yes.
0: For you guys, you know, and the folks out there going, well, I think my business is in pretty good shape. Yeah. And you guys have a rather robust diagnostic tool.
1: Yes, we do. Let's talk
0: about that a little bit. And and what you see, once you get the numbers, what do you derive from the numbers you get?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's called the sellability score. And what it is, is they take a 13-minute assessment. They can log into raincatcher.com click uh, free valuation. They're going to fill out their name, email, and I think that's all we ask for. And then the next step is a 13-minute assessment. And I I say 13 minutes, some take some 20, but if you've got all your information in front of you or you know your business, uh, it's really quick. And when you're done, what it does is produces a 27-page report, but most important, a summary report that gives the overall score of the business And the eight drivers attributes that buyers look for when they're buying a business, it gives them a score of each one of them. And so then the owner knows the areas that they need to improve upon or the areas that they're very strong on. And we actually use that for calculating the multiple and also preparing our marketing package for that business. It's such a great report. And it's something that we provide for free. I mean, of course, we hope when we talk to you that we show our value and maybe we can figure out if we can work together, but we believe in helping the small business owner. And so that's a great first step. And that will go through financials, owner dependency, Uh, customer concentration is another area that often comes up. A lot of owners will have maybe one or two very large customers and Hey, great. I love it. When I hear that you've landed, a big customer who's been with you for 10 years, but if it makes up more than 25% of your revenue, that can be concerning to a buyer. Because what mm-hmm. happens when that person leaves? Yep. What happens well, to Well, they get business? bought out and
0: they have a different... Yeah. You know, so, for you know, there's a typical score level. Yeah. Then there's kind of a score level benchmark that changes and beating around the bush. Yeah. On the multiples for low scoring versus multiples for high scoring, yeah. what do you see typically as the spread between those two?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a typical business is going to, small business below, let's say, $2 million in revenue. Very rare that we're going to see multiples above a three. Mm-hmm. It's just normally it's between a two and a three. That's just rule of thumb. Anyone above like a $2 million in revenue, there can be quite a spread. I mean, anywhere from you know, again, a two all the way up to a seven or an eight. And, you know, people will say, well, how can that be, Marla? Because it depends on your industry. It depends on if that's something that buyers are looking for, you know, if that's mm-hmm. if it's a hot market sector. Beginning of 2019, there were some industries out there that we could pretty much find a buyer within a couple of days mm-hmm. <laughs> because, They were looking for these specific markets to be able to either add on or go ahead and invest in. And so depending on several different variables, the eight drivers being a big Mm -hmm. part of that, there can be, you know, that multiple can be quite high if you have what I call a turnkey business, something where the buyer comes in, the risk is low, they see growth. Right. You've set up a business that continues to scale historical financials and numbers show that Um, you've set up a team that the buyer can't duplicate. We often talk with buyers about build versus buy. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you have a business that a buyer can't just go start up and build what mm-hmm. you've done at that point it makes more sense for them to buy it and then continue to scale and
0: apply those principles throughout their organization that's right you know, As yeah. policy process and, and, and people and, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and i i think sometimes the, the business owners says i have a great business it's supported my life you know my children are educated i've done all this i'm a pillar of the community yeah. and, uh, and you know when you're dead what
1: yeah
0: i think it's hard for them in many cases to see that yeah i really do
1: yeah i do too You know, that's an important topic, too, uh, is that post-closing. You know, we spend a lot of times talking with our seller about the reason why they want to sell. There was some numbers that came out a while ago, and and I'll share it. Business brokers tend to shy away from it, but I'll tell you why I don't mind sharing it, is that the survey said that 75% of business owners often regret selling their business. Now, people apply that, that it must be the numbers. It's not. Only 5% regretted the the terms or the asking price, the purchase price they received. What it is, is what do you do after you sell? Because I know just the time I had Kaizen, that was my identity. I mean, gosh, we pretty much had signs around the house, Kaizen, 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 Mm -hmm. right? So then when it was gone, it's like, well, who am I and what do I do? And so that's a big thing. We also have an assessment that our owners can take called pre-score that no. will give them a personal readiness score of where they're at and whether they've thought about what they want to do after they sell. Yeah,
0: you know, it's going like, well, how much golf can you play? <laughs> it's, you, you know, it's For some, people, but for it's some true. people, it's a lot. Yes. But for others, you kind of go, well, or how much fishing can you do? Yes. Or how much traveling can you do? And at some point, you kind of go, so I've had a number of business owners myself that have sold, and a number of them said, the single worst thing I ever did. Yeah. I said, because I'm now lost. Right. And you kind of go, and and I think they miss the interaction with their employees. Yeah. I think that it's their identity. And when they go somewhere, they're known as the business owner of. Sure. You know, and, and I don't, I honestly think there's very little or a diminished amount of attention played in that phase three.
1: Oh, I agree with you. What, what the statistics tell us that, right? Mm-hmm. The number 75%, that's huge. You know, and business brokers... Often in my circle will go, oh, don't talk about that. Well, we should be talking about that. That's important.
0: I think it's a service. Yeah. It's a differentiator because somewhere in there, somebody in the family is thinking about that.
1: Yes. And
0: I think if you go in and go, you know what, there are things we can do. Yes. There's even counselors and psychologists that work in that field. Yes. Talk about what you can do, where if you're going to spend all life, energy, and money that you did birthing this thing and bring it to close on a sale, then you really should be able to enjoy the proceeds and not feel regret.
1: That's right. And then, so one of the things we do too is setting them up, you know, making sure that they have a personal financial advisor because that is so important. I mean, you know that, you know, you've got story after story because when I go to hire a broker, one of the things I want to make sure is that they know and our, our culture and rank catcher is, Hey, I already know that you know what you're doing because otherwise I wouldn't be interviewing you. And I know that you can get the yes on getting an engagement, but we're more than that. I want, we spend time on making sure that that seller is truly ready to sell, that they're ready and prepared for what that means. That they thought about what's going to happen afterwards. So we set them up. Business broker that you're talking about. That's That's right. We set them up with Mm -hmm. personal financial advisors. We make sure we bring in their attorney and their CPA. Got
0: to bring the team on.
1: The team, the professional advisors that will be supporting them through this process. Mm -hmm. We want to engage those people in the beginning because we're looking for raving fans. We want when they sell that business that should be the best moment that they've had. And they should be happy and celebrate it and have something else to move on to.
0: So You know, I think about, I've been harassing you for a while as we come to a close. You know, I think most of the professional athletes throughout their career have multiple coaches. Yeah. In the golf world, which I know nothing about, but swing coach and the caddy functions. And you might have had somebody in their college career or past that have coached them along the way. Yeah. And I think about the notion that a business owner doesn't need professional coaches is I don't understand why that's not been transmitted better. I don't do surgery on the weekends. There's a reason. Right. And I think about the business on the benefit of what you guys bring to the table. How many business owners have worked with 500 businesses either as a CFO or selling or buying them that probably this is a one-time event for them? Yeah. And for you guys, for the listeners out there, I mean, everybody's going to exit their business. Yep. One way or another. One way or another. What is it? 64,000 generations, not a single survivor. Right. So we have a 100% success rate so far. You know, so they're going to leave. Yeah. And I think if for the business owner, even the right now says, I'm still building my business. I'm still forming my business. Mm-hmm. If they can adopt these principles that you're talking about now, mm-hmm. it'll make the business better. Yes. So to close this thing out, is there anything that I should have talked to you about that I didn't? Probably
1: lots, but... Oh, gosh. I mean, I just... i become so passionate when I'm talking about Mm -hmm. this. I literally could take another couple of hours because I care. No, I mean, I think the thing is, with your closing point, I'll Mm -hmm. dovetail off of that. If you think that you will be selling your business in the next, let's say, five years, Mm -hmm. you should align yourself with some type of advisor who knows what improvements need to be made in your business. You should be doing that now. Because if you do that, I promise you that you will be prepared to sell. You won't be surprised. You'll get the numbers that you want. You'll get the terms you want. You'll have multiple buyers. You'll get the type of buyer you want. You're more in control versus those owners that just wait too long. And you won't be surprised. And I'll just say, listen, I get it. I am one of those owners. I understand when you're a business owner, you're busy. You've got like these blinders on where you're just thinking about, oh, I just need to get payroll done, or I just need to get this contract signed. It's not that you're doing anything wrong, but I hope that they hear me today. Remove the blinders, look outside Outside of the tunnel vision, think and prepare and be proactive because it will be such a better experience. You will be so happy you made that decision.
0: So in closing, Marla. Yes. The only thing I can tell the folks that are listening is if you're not calling, you're making a mistake. And if you're shy about calling, there's online resources where you can take. And I did a survey the other day on my business and... I think that it's, you start looking at the value drivers, if they weren't hitting you in the face, you can say, there's eight areas I should take and focus on, and go, who's responsible for each area, and how much am I going to carve out? Yes. And move the needle, because it's probably one of the better investments of your time that you'll make. Yes. Well, Marla, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time this morning.
1: Thanks, Bob. I've really enjoyed this. This has been great.
0: Thanks so much.